Is this case considered a homicide? Well, I know we talked about that, and it's hard to decide, you know, when does it go from missing to considered a homicide? I'm Blade reporter Caitlin Durbin, and I'm sitting in a conference room at the Toledo Police Department with Detective Bill Goodlett, who you just heard speaking, and his supervisor, Sergeant Roy Kennedy. They work in the Crimes Against Persons Division, which includes homicides, and Detective Goodlett specifically works on cold cases. For the last month, we've been discussing the disappearance of Alvin Edwin Darrow Jr., a 63-year-old motorcycle enthusiast who went missing on July 27, 2017. The circumstances surrounding Alvin's death were, as you'd expect, suspicious. He had a stolen motorcycle on his property, he fought with his son about the motorcycle, he may have also fought with a group of men coming to claim the bike back, and then he's gone. Never to be seen or heard from again. Nearly three years have gone by without a single trace of Alvin, but detectives are still discussing whether they can move his case from the missing persons pile to an official homicide. Do police presume Alvin is dead? Yes, as does Alvin's family and friends, without hesitation. We don't have any reason to believe that he's just left the area and, and started some, somewhere new. But without having Alvin's body, legally defining him as dead is tricky. Even if police had a suspect in the case, in order to charge that person in the death, prosecutors would first have to prove that Alvin is dead, something that's hard to do without a body. But where that makes Detective Goodlett reserved and cautious about calling Alvin's disappearance a homicide, it doesn't hinder his supervisor, Sergeant Kennedy. They're not looking for Alvin Darrow, he told me. They're looking for his body. The case law sort of indicates that you have to prove that it would be completely out of character for him to go missing the way he did. And so far, I think we're kind of there. He left a lot of things behind that a normal person wouldn't, um, as far as means of how to, if he was missing. He left everything, all of his worldly possessions at home, including his dog. And it's just, it would be very uncharacteristic for him to go missing in the manner uh, of which we're describing. It's my belief that he is dead, period, of the story. Not even 1% of me thinks that he's missing. From the Blade, you're listening to Code 18, Unsolved. Yeah, Code 18 just references the radio code that we use when we describe a dead body. police always devote some time and manpower to unsolved homicides, cases where leads ran dry and suspects remain elusive. These cases are never just forgotten on some shelf collecting dust. Often the files sit on an assigned detective's desk and the detectives look at them when they're not working newer cases, hoping fresh eyes might spy a new clue. But in the last year, the department decided to ramp up their efforts to try to bring closure to the more than 400 families who have been waiting for answers in cold cases dating back to 1950. 
the department assigned Detective Goodlett to start diving deeper. Eventually, they hoped to make cold cases his full-time job. Now, Detective Bill Goodlett is about as non-threatening a police officer as they come. He's quiet and unimposing and always perfectly groomed. Shirt tucked in, hair trimmed and coiffed, a thin mustache across his lip. He looks like he's perpetually ready to drop into a front row church pew. I imagine it's what makes suspects and witnesses want to open up to him. He has a way of making you feel safe. And for his first cold case, he turned his attention to Alvandero. It's a case police and Lucas County prosecutors agree can be solved with just a little push. A witness, new evidence, a confession, something. Uh, this just seemed like a case that we, we believe that we can, we, can, we can find out what happened here. Um, small window of time, and we don't believe there's a lot of people that uh, are involved. Detective Goodlett was not the lead detective investigating Alvin's disappearance in 2017. That title belonged to Detective Deborah Hahn. She retired in January of 2019. But he has been reviewing Detective Hahn's interviews and going back to talk to some of the witnesses involved again. You'll hear directly from those witnesses throughout this podcast. Starting out, very little was publicly known about Alvin Darrow mainly because he isn't a traditional homicide victim. He's a missing person. People are reported missing all the time, and they go missing for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're trying to escape a bad situation, and sometimes they just want to go somewhere new, and they don't always tell their friends and family when and where they're going. Their being missing doesn't necessarily mean that something bad has happened to them and often they turn up soon after, so it rarely rises to the attention of the news. In fact, people are usually found so quickly that it can be difficult to determine a number for the actual missing. In 2019, for example, Toledo Police logged 1,357 missing persons reports, many of them duplicates as there is a large population of juveniles that run away for a few days some 10 to 20 times a month. All but seven of those missing persons reports have been resolved. The quick turnaround is one of the reasons why police rarely announce that a person is even missing. And when they do, it typically involves children or at-risk adults, not healthy men in their 60s with financial means to start a new life. So the Blade never really reported on Alvandero being missing. All I found on him nearly three years later was two short briefs which announced he'd been missing for a year and then again after two years. Each is less than a hundred words. The first brief, written in October of 2018, says only that police are seeking information about the whereabouts of Alvin Edwin Darrow Jr., who'd been missing for over a year at that point. It described him as a white man with brown eyes and gray hair, roughly 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighing 185 pounds. The second brief, written a year later in 2019, was nearly identical. Police agreed to help fill in the blanks. Hi, I'm Caitlin with The Blade. I have an interview with Detective Goodlett. Typically, in homicide or suspected homicide cases, police are very tight-lipped. Holding back certain information that only the killer would know is one way to weed out fact from fiction 
and prevent false confessions. So typically when we ask them to share information about ongoing cases, there's not a lot they readily tell us. That is not the case here. Police tell me that they want to find Alvin, or at least his body. To accomplish that, they are willing to try something they've never done before. Detective Goodlett opened up his oversized white binder with Alvin's name printed on the side, and he started telling me the story of Alvin's disappearance in detail. He hopes that retelling the story may jog the memory of someone listening to this podcast or otherwise help pry loose new information. It's an experiment, he called it, and Alvin is the first test subject. That's how we first get involved. 911, where's your murder piece? Um, it's the address is 3541 Dean Street, right over off Manhattan. This 911 call is made by Rocky Conley II, a then 33-year-old business owner and close friend of Alvin Darrow. Now, I should note here that to his friends and family, Alvin went exclusively by a different name. They called him Hopper, a nickname given to him at birth because he was always scrunched up and folding his legs into himself the way a grasshopper would. For whatever reason, the name stuck. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear the two names used interchangeably. Police almost always refer to him as Alvin Darrow. Friends use the name Hopper, and even correct me at times when I call him by his legal name. Rocky had known Hopper Darrow for about 10 years, He'd met Hopper through Hopper's oldest son, Jeremy, and the two hit it off immediately. In a lot of ways, Hopper became a surrogate father to Rocky, who'd lost his own father at age 10, and Rocky in turn was like Hopper's third son. Even Hopper's biological sons agreed Rocky was closer to their father than they were, especially since Hopper was absent most of their lives and they were still working on rebuilding a relationship with him. Hopper and Rocky talked multiple times a day. Their boats docked next to each other at the Lost Peninsula Marina, and they often purchased property from each other. On the day Hopper went missing, for example, Hopper was buying a truck from Rocky, and Rocky was supposed to swing by the house to pick up the remaining money owed. Conversely, Hopper also wanted Rocky to come look at one of his motorcycles, potentially to buy it. But when Rocky pulled up to the house to find all of Hopper's vehicles there and his dog running loose, but no sign of Hopper himself, he started to worry. Hopper's phone was ringing straight to voicemail, and neither of Hopper's sons seemed to know where he was either. So Rocky calls 911, setting the investigation in motion. The call came in at 7.05 p.m. on July 27, 2017, and lasted less than two minutes. It's unclear from the conversation why the dispatcher asks if the assailants were black. It's possible she misheard Rocky at some point, but we're playing the audio in full to give you the most accurate account of how the story was unfolding in real time. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I was driving by a few minutes ago and there was a bunch of guys jumped out with guns right there. So I, did, I don't know the people, I just wanted to let you guys know that a bunch of people jumped out and I kept driving because of course I can't get involved. But 
It was just it was just going on. How many uh, black males that jumped out? I um, oh, gosh, it wasn't even. There was like a, one black dude, a couple of white dudes. Oh, there's probably about four of them. Okay. And there were people at the house, like, up there, and it looked like they were running up. I don't know if they were going to steal something, like a motorcycle or whatever it was, but it looked like some hardcore action. Okay. You know what they were driving? I honestly didn't pay attention. I floored it when I seen that stuff happen. I didn't, I kind of went blank. I just seen the guys jump out and okay. guns all over the place. I was, holy shit. I just wanted to, I literally, it happened probably two, three minutes ago. I just got away to get the phone on here. Okay. All right. Well, I do have them notified. Um, you don't remember or recall what either of them were wearing or what they were driving or anything like that? Actually, I don't even, I didn't even see, man, I, don't okay. I don't know if it was a car truck, honestly. I don't even, I wish I had an answer for you. Okay. It kind of freaked me out. I call you. I don't ever call 911. It scared me a little bit. That's okay. I, um, I do have them notified to 3541 Dean. I'll go check it out. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. From this call alone, there's no indication that this relates in any way to Hopper Darrow, unless you recognize the address. 3541 Dean Street was the address of a home catacorner to Hopper's. Their yards actually touch. At the time, Hopper was in the process of buying it, and his youngest son, Tim Darrow, was living there. But otherwise, Hopper isn't even mentioned in the call. Just some strange story about a bunch of men approaching the home in what appeared to Rocky to be a threatening manner. If you didn't catch it the first time, he tells the dispatcher that he's driving by the house and he sees a bunch of guys with guns jump out of their vehicle and start running up to the house, Tim's house. Rocky had only a vague description of the men and says he doesn't recognize any of them. Now, this is very scary and suspicious, right? A bunch of men running up to a home with guns waving? That could surely be an explanation for why Hopper is missing. But this call is also a lie. I was just trying to get the cops here. So I was like, you know, there's people breaking in the house or something. I made something up to try to get some response. And you say that with a smile now. Yeah, because like when the detective talked to me recently, I felt like a jackass because I lied. Rocky rationalized that if he tried to report Hopper as a missing person after just a few hours of not knowing where he was, the dispatcher likely would not be urgent in sending officers out to look for him. So Rocky came up with a story that he thought would force police to respond immediately. He spun a tale of threatening men, guns, and lives in danger. Even then, Rocky had a bad feeling that Hopper was in trouble. Rocky says he stayed by Hopper's house for a while, waiting for police to arrive, but they never came. Or they came when he quickly ran to the Apple store to get his iPhone fixed. He had an appointment he didn't want to miss. But after more than four hours and still no answers, he calls 911 again, just before midnight. This call lasts for two minutes and 40 seconds. The audio is low quality and hard to hear in areas. It sounds like it has been altered to redact some information, but police said there must have been either a poor connection when the call was made, or there was a glitch when dispatch tried to download it, because this is the exact recording given to them. It's possible that we're missing some of the conversation in those jumps, 
or that Rocky and the dispatcher are talking over each other, making it unclear, for example, who suggests there may be mental health concerns. But again, we're playing the audio in full, exactly as we received it. 911, where is your emergency? Um, I'm calling the, uh, my, got to a friend that takes care of his son. They were, uh, yeah, we can do that. What is the address? Where do they live? They're actually, the dad owns both houses in the right state. Okay. Okay. They touch, they touch the same property. They're, they're both owned by okay. and, and 3541 Dean Street. They actually touch each other on the back. Yards actually walk back and forth to the yards because they touch each other on the back. Okay. I'm really concerned. So he wants us to be said if they talk to the son. I just want to check on to make sure that dad. Yeah, we can send him out to Majestic to check on the father. Yeah. Okay, and what's your name? My name is Rocky Conley. Okay. So he was arguing with his son earlier today? Yeah, and I don't, like I said, I don't, this was something I, I don't want to be involved with because the son and I... What time was this happening? This was happening about, uh, about four o'clock. After that, he hasn't answered his phone and his phone got off and now he's never had... Okay. It's not like a game, you know, I don't, I don't call yeah. it for no reason. Okay, and then do you know about any weapons, any guns and knives? You know, honestly, I can't, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Okay, do you know if anyone needs any medical attention? I surely hope not. I'm just hoping they don't find Hopper dead. What's his son's name? Tim. Tim, and what's the last name? Daryl. It's both Daryl. Okay, and it's D-E-R-O? D-A-R-R-O-W. Okay. All right, sir. And what's your phone number? 419-280. Okay. Like said, what's Alvin's call back? What's right. Alvin's phone number? Uh, and uh, you said his son has mental issues? Yeah, I don't. Okay. I just hear about the opera. I don't know what the actual. Okay. They, uh, it just makes me sick to my stomach. I don't, I don't like to even cause any ruckus. And 327 Majestic, the house, correct? It's not like an apartment or duplex? No. Okay. And then his son lives at uh, 3541 Dean. Dean, up in the same yard, yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to get the police notified out there to go and check on him. Yeah, Alvin owns both houses, just so you know. Okay. This time, Rocky mentions Alvin by his real name and says he's worried about him. He doesn't explain why he's worried or what he's really worried about. He just says his friend's phone is off and no one can get a hold of him. That's unusual, he says. Unusual enough to warrant concern. Repeatedly, Rocky gives police Tim's address, the same address where he called police to in the first 911 call with a phony story about men with guns. We also learn here for the first time that Alvin and his youngest son Tim had a fight earlier that day. Rocky doesn't explain the fight or expressly state that it's cause for worry, but when the dispatcher asks if anyone is injured, Rocky responds, I surely hope not. I'm just hoping they don't find Hopper dead. Why he's already worrying at this point that Hopper might be dead is unclear. And this is how the first day of Alvin's disappearance ends.
it wouldn't be until the next day when police would hear concerns from someone other than Rocky about Alvandera's well-being. 19 hours after Rocky's first 911 call, Hopper's oldest son, Jeremy Darrow, calls police to officially report his father missing. The only edit we made to this audio was to redact Jeremy's full phone number. 911, where's your emergency? I have to report a missing person. Okay. Uh, where you at? Excuse me? I report a person. We need to have police uh, meet with you or have you come to the station. Do you want police out? I'm at, I'm, I'm actually at, the, at his house right now. Okay. What's the address? It's 327 Majestic Drive. Your name? Jeremy Darrow. It's my father. Okay, so you've been in the house and you know he's not there? We know he's not here. Okay. He's, the three people that he would talk to in the last two days would, are all here. Okay. And he's, he's clearly not here. What's his name? Alvin Darrow. D-A-R-R-O-W? Yes, that's correct. Okay, just making sure. Is he black, white, or Hispanic, sir? Excuse me? Is he black, white, or Hispanic? Uh, he's white. What color hair, color eyes? Uh, dark, dark gray hair, okay. uh, brownish, okay. like a hazel eyes. And about how tall is he? Five seven. Okay. And you got a weight on him? Uh, right now I'd say probably one seventy. Okay. One sixty five. Gotcha. And when's the last time anybody talked to him? It's been. Yesterday, maybe around 1 o'clock, okay. maybe noon, I was with him. He was just running home to grab something, Okay. coming back to where I was. All of his vehicles and everything are at his location. Okay, gotcha. All of his keys. And uh, We have... called the hospitals. We okay. called the jails. No, it's, uh, you don't have to prove anything to me, sir, okay? I'm going to send a cruise okay. out for yeah. you at 327 Majestic. Um, do you, does he okay. suffer from anything like uh, dementia, ADHD? Uh, no, like he that? does. He does have heart issues. He's had okay. had a uh, he had a heart attack maybe five years ago. Okay. Had okay. a couple of stints put in. Gotcha. But nothing, no dementia. He's not. You know, he's 63, okay. 64, and all of his vehicles are here, so there's no way he would have drove away or any of that. Yeah. Uh, phone number for you: four one nine three six seven. That's correct. All right, we'll get police over there for you, sir. 327 Majestic Drive, okay? Thank you, sir. Yes, appreciate it. Bye-bye. You can hear the worry in Jeremy's voice. He says they've checked the area hospitals, they've checked the jail, they've talked to everyone who might have seen Alvin. But Alvin is still missing. Now, Jeremy says he waited until the next day to report his father missing based on some believed rule that a person must be out of touch for at least 24 hours before police will take a missing person's report. Police stressed that no such rule exists. Regardless, Jeremy says that even from his first unanswered call to his father, he suspected it was too late. From day one, he said, this was a recovery mission not a rescue. They said it wasn't long enough to file a missing persons report and they wouldn't even talk about the homicide part of it. We that's from the immediate it wasn't to us to Rocky and I it wasn't a missing person. Something happened. So you consider this now to be a homicide. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Next week, we dive into the story behind the stolen motorcycle, which seems to be at the heart of Alvin's mysterious disappearance. Who owned it? How was it stolen? And what does it have to do with Alvin Darrow? We remind you that this remains an open investigation. If you have any information about this case or any other unsolved homicides, call Toledo Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111 and share what you know. Callers can remain anonymous and your information may result in a reward. In cases like this, where evidence is sparse or conflicting, solving the mystery requires witnesses. Help put this Code 18 to rest. And help spread the word about the podcast by giving us a five-star review and recommending us to your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code18. Code 18 is reported and written by me, your host, Caitlin Durbin, for The Blade. Phil Kaplan is our producer, with original art and theme music by Danielle Gamble. Additional original music provided by Joel Roberts. Editing assistance comes from Blade editors Michael Walton, Michael Bryce, and Kim Bates. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin Durbin. I'm a Blade reporter and host of this podcast. If you're enjoying it, I invite you to subscribe to The Blade and support my colleagues in the reliable journalism that makes this work possible. The Blade has been reporting on Toledo's history since before the city itself was established. We are the newspaper of record. Go to ToledoBlade.com and click subscribe.